Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with author John Scovern. John writes fantasy novels for adults and teens. He's the author, most recently, of the Empire of Storms trilogy, published by Orbit Books. The first book, Hope in Red, which Sci-Fi Bulletin called A Rip-Roaring Tale of Revenge, was published in June of 2016. The second book, Bane and Shadow, was released in February of 2017, and the third book, Blood and Tempest, in November of 2017. His next fantasy trilogy, The Goddess War, begins with The Ranger of Marzana, which is due on April 21st of this year. He's the author of several young adult novels, including Misfit, which was published in 2011, which Holly Black, if you know any YA authors out there, Holly Black's a huge one. Uh, she called a diabolically delightful paranormal about a teen girl discovering her inner strength and power and her potential for darkness. Uh, Man-Made Boy, which was published in 2013, was a Junior Library Guild selection and shortlisted for the Inky Reader's Choice Award in Australia. io9.com said if Man-Made Boy hasn't been optioned for a film or at least a CW series by the end of the year, we can be assured that Hollywood has actually forgotten how to read. And apparently they have. Uh, the audiobook, which John recorded for Random House's Listening Library, was named Best Fiction Read by Author for Publisher Weekly's Listen Up Awards. The sequel, The Broken Wondrous World, also a Junior Library Guild selection, was published in August of 2015. John's short stories have appeared in publications like Chizine and Bane's Universe, and more recently in, in anthologies such as Grimm from Harlequin Queen, Harlequin Teen, wow, and Summer Days and Summer Nights from St. Martin's Press. He, he currently lives with his two sons just outside Washington, D.C. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, John Scovern. Hey, thanks for bringing me on. Yeah, no problem at all. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that very long intro. <laughs> so you listened to your whole life flash before you, <laughs> uh, except audio. Yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah, your, your whole life, at least for the past like nine years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so how's everything going in DC? I know, uh, I know, you know, you're a lot more north than I am here in Alabama, but you're not, you know, definitely as crazy as is in New York. Yeah, no, it's definitely not as bad as it is in New York, but we are, you know, officially on like uh, uh, stay at home or or whatever. Um, all Maryland, DC, Virginia, the whole whole area. So. It's a little weird, but honestly, like, you know, I, I feel I feel bad for some of my friends who are more kind of gregarious and stuff. For me, it's actually quite easy. I mean, I have kind of hermetic tendencies to begin with. So so being at home all day and like not kind of shunning the world is actually like kind of natural for me. So, yeah. Um, yeah. See, that's sounds like my wife. So my wife is a first grade teacher. She's been doing that for uh, for three years in the same school now. And um She's been at home a couple of days longer than I have, and they had their spring break and so forth already. But she was like, uh, she'll come into my office and she'll go, I gotta get out of this house. And I go, <laughs> I was like, You can go for a walk, like it's okay. Like we live in a nice neighborhood, it's fine. Yeah, and she yeah. goes, Well, I mean, like, can you just like can you get a break or something? I'm like, you know, I mean I can, but like I'm so used to being in my office or like in a office setting and working all day. And not really seeing the light of day for eight to nine hours. Sure. And, uh, yeah. But, you know, like today, it was actually kind of refreshing. It was a gorgeous day outside. And I go, oh, this is what it's like to be back on the outside. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I have to go for a walk every day. There's like, I'm lucky. The area where I live, it's like a weird little historic uh, 
like area um, built in the 1930s. It was kind of Eleanor Roosevelt's brainchild. It's like this little, it was kind of the first planned community um, that was built specifically to be like a residential area for people working in DC. Um, and it has lo- all these like little walking pathways through wooded areas that lead down to this big lake and you can walk around the lake and it's, it's the pathways are wide enough that it's not actually a problem to say walk down the pathway while someone else is going in the opposite direction and still maintain that like six feet of separation. Yeah. So I, I lucked out that way too. It's pretty nice. That's good. Yeah. We, we kind of moved from a lot larger neighborhood to a lot smaller one about, I guess about a year and a half ago. And um, so we've only got about 37 houses in this neighborhood and only like 20 or so are occupied. So, but here recently in the last month, like we live in a cul-de-sac and we kind of, that was our, uh, that was our like mountaintop was that we're like, we're in a cul-de-sac and we're the only house in the cul-de-sac. It's amazing. Yeah. And now we have like four families that moved in in the last month that all have at least two or three kids. Oh, so wow. like, so we just look outside and they're all in the, in the cul-de-sac and I go, okay, well we can't walk our dogs there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. What's up? I said, it's tricky, man, trying to like navigate with kids running around and being like, yeah. you don't want to be rude, of course. So everyone kind of gives these like awkward smiles like, hi, I'm not unfriendly. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. And <laughs> nothing, nothing against you and nothing against me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's see, all very weird. Yeah. See, that's like I went to, I went to the grocery store last weekend and, um, you know, since my wife's six months pregnant, she's like, all right, you got to do masks. You got to do gloves we're not, you know, you're not bringing this back with you. And so mm-hmm. I get there like five minutes before they open and uh, there's like 20 people outside and I go, well, this is already interesting. Cause I've never seen anybody like, except for like waiting on a new iPhone to come out to actually like sit outside of a store in the morning. And, uh, I walk in and <laughs> I go down the first aisle and there's a couple of other like older ladies that are there with their masks and gloves and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, kind of, you know, kindly waiting behind my cart, giving, giving footage, you know, and sure. this woman just like glances at me and I, I swear like I startle her <laughs> and I thought for a second, she thought I was too close to her and it looked like she was going to attack me because I was too oh, close wow. to her. And, uh, and I was like, no, 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 you're fine. I promise you're fine. Maybe I think it's because like, you know, I'm not quite 30. I do look kind of young. And so maybe I look like I already have something. And that's why I'm wearing the mask and the gloves. I don't uh, know. <laughs> uh-huh. And so I, I, I told my wife, I was like, you know, the next time I do this, I've got to go, you know, like maybe like 1 p.m. on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday when nobody else is there. And then I, oh, can do I don't, my I don't know if you're going to find that now. I mean, yeah, everyone's true. Kind of, at least here in Maryland, everyone's like at home pretty much. That's true. So there's no off times really anymore. Yeah. Because are, are you guys are you guys kind of on lockdown yeah, yeah, okay. we we are we are uh, officially the governor of Maryland is like you know don't leave home except for basically to go to the grocery store, or the pharmacy, or you know walk around your neighborhood, and even then keep six feet apart. Like it's official now. Okay. Um, I think you can actually, I think they're actually they can bring criminal charges uh, against you if if you're violating that. Um, in at least in Maryland, I don't think that's necessarily true in in Virginia, but on uh, and or D, I don't know if it is in DC, but yeah, it's it's getting pretty intense. Yeah. Um, not as bad as it is in like you know Spain and and France and and stuff and where the they UK. like fine you if you don't have like an official document. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was I was talking to Anastasia Spark the other day, and she said that um they're allowed out once a day for a short walk, and they can go to the market 
but you could they can only have I think five people in the market at a time. Mm-hmm. And if they catch you out not having a necessity reason to be out, yeah, they can I think fine you or I don't know if they can like necessarily arrest you, but I, th- I think it's like fine. And then however many times you get it, I think then you can like actually have charges pressed. We haven't gotten, we haven't gotten to even y'all's point yet here in Alabama. It's just, um, I think like all these, all the businesses are closed except for the essential ones. Uh, and then I think that's through like the end of April. Um, uh, cause I think originally it was like the 17th, so like Easter. And then they changed it, you know, since Trump decided to do the end of the month. So, I don't know if we'll get to the whole lockdown point yet. I think we just went over a thousand in the state, so I don't know if we're that we're not that close yet. So, well, hopefully you don't. I mean, it's yeah. it's no fun. I gotta say. <laughs> Wait, you mean you mean staying inside all day with with no sunlight is is, is well, wonderful? I mean, yeah. I I there are two things I miss. One is uh, I miss going to the gym mm-hmm. uh, because that's kind of like how I handle anxiety and stress. I just go to the gym and work it out. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I miss is having my kids go to school. I do miss that a lot. Um, so, you know, for them, they, I'm sure, you know, they don't miss going to school, of course. But I do feel like although the teachers are doing their best, it's not an ideal scenario or way to teach. Um, you know, it's just trying to make do. So those are the things that I miss. But yeah, otherwise, it's all kind of the same to me. I guess. Yeah. That's <laughs> why so I get to my office. I was like, I kind of I kind of live for working at home because I've, I've made my office like a place where I can literally be all day except for I can't sleep in here. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like I've, I've got my bookcases in here. I've got mm-hmm. my, my desktop in my work computer with two more monitors. I've got a TV. Like I've got a whole setup in here. Oh, I don't, I don't have a mini fridge. That'll be the next thing. Oh man, um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, it kind of brings out like the. Granted, I can't really do a whole lot of it because I'm working, but it kind of brings out you know like the gamer side of me that I was growing up. That I can mm-hmm. like, I mean, I'm like I I can go outside for a little bit, get my 30 minutes to an hour in, but like I'm in the zone when I'm inside in the dark <laughs> with the TV on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, it's 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 like I think that, and I don't know whether this is true of of all authors or, or novelists or, or what have you, but like. My general default is I just want to keep doing whatever it is I'm doing right then. Yeah. Um, and that can be really helpful when I need to write a book. Um, but it can also, of course, the downside um, is that if I am, in fact, playing Animal Crossing, then I, I just want to keep playing Animal Crossing. So <laughs> it's kind of a double-edged thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, since you brought it up, I've got to know, what is, what is the craze behind Animal Crossing? Because I didn't play the original. And, mm-hmm. but like all my friends are playing the, the, the switch game that just came out. Why, so, why is it so great? So it's new to me too. Okay. Um, my son is actually the one who convinced me he's 14 years old and, and, uh, uh self-describes, uh, and identifies as a gamer. Um, he kind of views it as a kind of a cultural thing. And, um, so he, uh, um, sorry, I'm, your phone's going off. Uh, so he he's the one who convinced me to get it. And, well, a combination of him and my brother, who was also texting me and being like, oh, I'm getting Animal Crossing for basically therapeutic reasons. Um, and, and I think that's really what it comes down to. There's not like a winning in the game. You basically just hang out on your own island and invite people, either like real people or, you know, computer NPC type peoples. Um, 
uh, over to like hang out with you and you like make your house and you decorate it and you just kind of, and you fish and you, it's so mellow. It's, it's, it's just really chill. Gotcha. Um, and, and, and it's really well designed. I mean, I, I, I have to say, I appreciate like, there's a, just a like the audio and the music and everything about it is just really well designed. So it's basically just like this kind of, you know, when we're all kind of feeling trapped mm-hmm. in this kind of, you know, crazy pandemic world, like it's, it's a release valve. It's a way to escape all that. I, I don't know if Animal Crossing would have been that successful if it had come out any other time. I mean, maybe it would. It is a great game, but like, I feel like it's filling an, a very specific need that a lot of people have right now. I gotcha. And then, and it makes sense. And man, it like I, I know they didn't plan it that way, but man, like mm-hmm. it couldn't come out at a better time. I just, know, just like That's Tiger so King on Netflix, man, it's like perfect timing. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, I, I know, I know. Netflix is starting to like push some other shows now that they know everybody's home. So I think they've got this other one out called, I think it's called like a hundred humans or something. And mm. they they like have all these people come in and ask them these like really ridiculous questions. Like we watched the like semi trailer for it last night. And they had asked all these people to come sit on a toilet and then tell them how they put the toilet roll on, whether, <laughs> whether it's over or under. Uh-huh. And I think it's just like a bunch of different things like that, but it's just one of those things where like people have nothing else to do. So they're going to watch something like that. Oh, and I actually, I, I have to admit, I watched tiger King. It, it, I lost a lot of brain cells watching it and uh, it's, <laughs> It's not something I'd normally watch, but everybody was talking about it. And uh, yeah, I I don't recommend it. But if you find yourself really bored, it's on. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah, no, a friend of mine said that she loved it. I've noticed a lot of people um, have been doing like a lot of rewatches of things they loved. Again, probably more for comfort than than anything else. Right. You know, and it's also great for multitasking, I suppose, if you if you want to do a task, oh, I'm going to clean this thing or organize that thing that I've been meaning to do for like two years now. <laughs> and I'm going to do it because I'm trapped at home and it's driving me nuts. But on the other hand, I also go nuts just doing it. So right. you put, you know, Firefly on in the background and, you know, Malcolm Reynolds kind of gets you through it, I suppose. <laughs> but you don't have to pay attention because if you're like me, you've already seen the entirety of Firefly like ten times. So right. it's not like something you really need to spend a lot of focus on. Yeah, yeah. See that's that's like my wife uh, she's been meaning to clean her office for like, you know, the entirety of the time we've been in this new house. And uh like literally the first week she got out from school, she didn't really have a whole lot to do yet because they hadn't started the e learning process. And uh, she's like, I'm going to clean my office. And literally within like two days, it was like crystal clean. And they go, so now what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, but yeah. at least it's done. I mean, that's great. Yeah, right? exactly. It's it's like we did spring cleaning when, you know, because we actually had the time to do it. Uh, but yeah, it's like I'm, I'm, uh, I've been watching Always Sunny while working. And I think I'm in uh, season eight now, just like mm-hmm. going all the way back through it. Because uh, there's 14 seasons and it's still going, so I feel oh, I feel geez. pretty accomplished so far. <laughs> so um, all right, let's let's talk about something happy, even though you know, TV shows <laughs> and games make us happy. But um, so kind of to start off, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about you know growing up, going through school, kind of uh, any hobbies you have when you were in school, and kind of how you got to where you are today. Oh man, well, um, so I I mostly grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Um, 
And uh, yeah, although most of my family's from New York and a lot of them are still in New York, um, which is obviously, you know, a not awesome place to be right now. Um, so, but they're all for, fine for now. Um, everyone's good. Um, but yeah, so, so I grew up in Columbus um, and early on, uh, you know, I was always a really avid reader, of course. Um, and uh, <laughs> So one thing that probably I like to joke, uh, I, although it may be true, prepared me for a, a, a career in writing uh, fantasy fiction is I, I fell in love with Dungeons and Dragons, um, the classic, AD, we called it AD&D back then, you know, kind of, I'm sure I dated myself just now. Um, but I was obsessed with this game, right? But I had like no friends. <laughs> so um I would basically just sit there and create campaigns and create characters. And, and then I wouldn't have anything to do with them. So then I just created another campaign and some more characters. And I was, that was just like a little hobby of mine. Um, and I also just, you know, read a ton. Um, and then I think it was probably around maybe eighth grade, two things happened. One, my mother got very concerned about my uh, antisocial behavior. Um, <laughs> and she signed me up for some theater classes. Um, and the other thing was that I discovered, um, and this was like, it must've been 89 um, or so. Um, I discovered in quick order, uh, Jane's Addiction, Nirvana, Nine Inch Nails and the Pixies um, and The Cure. <laughs> so uh, I, I be suddenly became like alterna goth theater kid. Um, <laughs> and that was pretty much what I did in high school. Um, I, you know, I would still read a lot and I would still write, but I didn't take it seriously, which is something I did. Um, and I also wrote a lot of songs. I was going to be throughout at least the first couple years of high school. I was going to the plan was I was going to be a rock star. Um, I had a bunch of different bands um, that I was playing in. I played guitar, I played bass, I played a little drums. I, I jumped around a lot. Um, I had a lot of fun with it, too. It was, it was a good time. Um, but I, as high school progressed, I got more and more serious about theater. Um, I happened to be, uh, my high school had like a really good theater program, and um, just coincidentally. And I got involved with that, and I ended up... Um, uh, getting into Carnegie Mellon uh, School of Drama for college, um, and a couple of my um, couple other people from my high school had gone there as well. And it's a really intense program. It's a conservatory program, so you're literally doing nothing but theater for four years, um, working every day from like usually it was around eight thirty to ten, eleven at night. Um, so you know, over twelve hours a day, pretty much almost nonstop. You know, with like a lunch break and a dinner break and and there's a, there's a cut system too. So you, um, if you don't perform up to their standards, then you get cut. Um, and I, you know, remember, especially at the end of my sophomore year, you know, people had spent two years of their life with this program and suddenly they're told to just pack up their bags and go, um, you know, and unfortunately because it's a conservatory program, although the theater credits do transfer to other schools, though, <laughs> I mean, how many theater credits does it, do most schools need? Um, right. So they're kind of not super helpful in transfers. Um, yeah. So that was a pretty intense experience. Um, I, I learned a ton. Um, 
not just about theater, but about creativity and about expression and uh, about, you know, theater, uh, literature and all sorts of stuff. And, and to this day, I feel like it informs my writing significantly. Um, but when I got out of college, um, I got my actor's equity card and everything, which is no small feat for someone just getting out of college um, to, to hit the union and stuff like that. And I did uh, a couple of shows right out of college that really helped me understand the reality of being a professional actor. And while I like the artistic element of being an actor, I didn't particularly care for the business. Um, and the biggest part, I think, for me, the one that I just could not get past was this idea that I had to um, that I had to wait for somebody else to hire me before I could do my art. Ah. Um, that part really bothered me. Um, and I, it all kind of came to a head. I was doing this production of The Merchant of Venice um, in Pittsburgh, um, and it was, uh, I think... Uh, I want to say Pablo Schreiber was was doing it with me, who's gone on to do quite well for himself, who's in uh, American Gods and uh, Orange is the New Black and a bunch of other stuff. He's a great guy. Um, uh, and uh, he and I and, and a couple other folks were doing this Merchant of Venice production, and we were doing it in a warehouse in Pittsburgh in the summer. And um, it was hot really hot. It was like 90 degrees. And I was cast as Lancelot Gobo, uh, the clown. And by this point that it was kind of a running joke. Like if, if I was going to be cast in anything, it was Shakespeare. And if I was going to be cast in Shakespeare, it was going to be a clown. So I got really good at Shakespearean clowns um, for some reason, kind of a weird niche thing, I suppose. <laughs> and, uh, and, and our director, Mladen Kizlov, he was Bulgarian. Um, he and I did not see eye to eye on on the expression of of this clown and he was like you are you are an angry clown yes yes tell me you are so angry and i'm like i i don't see that in the text i, I don't <laughs> are you getting this angry clown he's like oh, it's funny and i'm like be that as it may uh you know um but you know in the end he was the director and he had final say and uh perhaps maybe he never said but i've always kind of suspected that maybe to punish me for my my lip um, in this production of Merchant in the summer, in an air-conditioned, unair-conditioned warehouse, he had me wear a big wool sailor suit, like the Cracker Jack Kid kind of sailor suit. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Inexplicably. I, I, unclear why. Uh, anyway, it was so miserable, and I was so unhappy. And I'm sitting there backstage, just you know, in my wool sailor suit, just sweat pouring down my face. And I'm 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 backstage reading. Um, the World According to Garp um, by John Irving. And, you know, with the kind of arrogance that only a 22-year-old can pull off, I look at it and I'm like, I can do this. I'm just going to do this instead. Um, and that was when I decided I was going to be an, uh, a writer. Okay. Um, and, you know, it only took about uh, 10 years <laughs> after that <laughs> uh, before I had my first novel published in 2009. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of, I guess, my origin story. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite an origin story. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I can go on. You'll have to stop me now and again, or I'll, I'll just keep, you know, spinning around. No, you're completely fine. Um, all right. So I read your synopsis, uh, and, and I kind of, I kind of pulled some info from some other sources. 
Um, so I've seen it. She's been an actor, a musician, a lifeguard, mm-hmm. a Broadway theater ticket seller, a mm-hmm. warehouse grunt, a technical writer, and a web developer. So mm-hmm. what is the oddest job you've ever had? The oddest job I've ever had? Oh. Um, well, it's hard to say. Besides, besides, your, besides your being the clown and being told to be an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that was pretty weird. Um, I, I, you know... I, I had to work for a little while in a video rental place. Mm-hmm. There was the things called video rental places. I should back that up and say um, <laughs> where where one went to a store to to borrow a physical copy uh, of a movie uh, that that would then need to be returned, and you had to pay for it. You know, like a couple bucks, and then you'd have to return it in three days. It had um, to be rewound too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had to be rewound, or you'd get a fine. Um, <laughs> Um, And I had to work at one of these. uh, My parents uh, had moved to Phoenix, Arizona um, by that point. And I was uh, out there um, for the summer uh, just trying to make some money. And I worked at this place called Hollywood Video. And um, they made us wear black tuxedo pants, a a white ruffled tuxedo shirt, a red bow tie and a red cummerbund. That was like our or employee <laughs> uniform. And my, my stepbrother enjoyed on his way to work. He would, he would stop by some mornings and he would walk in the store, point at me and laugh and leave. That was just like <laughs> this little way. You just having some fun, I guess. And kind of start to start his day off. Right. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was up there for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> If you, if you ever need to, if you ever need to be reminded what it was like being in the '90s, just re- try to remember Blockbuster at Movie Gallery and Hollywood Rental. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, my gosh, yeah. Hollywood Video. Yeah, that's oh gosh. Be <laughs> be be kind. Rewind. Exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So um, when it comes to when it comes to writing, so do you do you write full time? Do you have a, a part time or full time job alongside it? Uh, uh, right now I do, I'm kind of all over the place. Um, I, I used to have a full-time job and then in 2015, um, in order to, uh, in order to write the Empire of Storms trilogy, that editor, uh, gave me a pretty intense, uh, uh, timeline. She wanted a book every nine months and my agent was like, can you do that? And I was like, well, I can if I have nothing else to do. And, <laughs> and so it was kind of like, well, how much money do you need to do that and to like quit the job? And so we basically negotiated that out so that I could do that. So I quit the job, full-time job, um, so that I could crank out Empire of Storms. And then, um, but now, um, because that nearly killed me, um, <laughs> uh, I, this time around for the goddess war, I was like, how about we not do that nine months apart thing? Um and, uh, you know, and so uh, uh, because of all of that and, and some other things besides, um, things were a little more laid back, but then I also needed to kind of get some uh, supplemental income. My kids are also going to private school now, and that stuff is expensive. So um, between that, I, I called up my old boss uh, when I pulled time job. I was like, hey, I don't suppose you need some, like, tech writing, like, two days a week, do you? And she was like, I'll, I'll take whatever I can get. And I was like, excellent. Um, so I am back doing a little of that on the side now. Um, and, you know, uh, but for the most part, yeah, I, I spend most days writing. 
um, at home. Obviously, it's all at home now, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so <laughs> which kind of leads to my next question. Uh, so prior to COVID-19, no, uh, so where do you, I guess, do you typically write at home? I mean, even before the whole lockdown and so forth, I mean, do you write in your home office or do you like to go, kind of go out and about and kind of get fresh air and get fresh ideas that way? Yeah, I mean, so... I know a lot of people, some friends of mine um, who love to go like write at like a cafe or, or someplace like that. And and I can do that. I can write anywhere. I mean, you know, I'm a single parent with two kids who's been doing this for a long time. If need be, I can write anywhere on, on an airplane, on a bus, on a train. Like it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I could write on a park bench. It's all it's all possible. My preference, though, is to be at home in my little writing nook in my, in my, uh, in my house, which is not a right, a special room or a special office. Cause I have a pretty small house, but just kind of a, a, a sectioned off part of my, my bedroom. Um, and it's right next to a window. I have these cork boards that are above my desk that I like to kind of post, um, you know, inspirational images and kind of character models, that kind of stuff that I can kind of quickly glance at to kind of get my head in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means that I can drink all the tea that I want. Um, and I, I drink a lot of tea. At one point, my doctor was like, you know, there is such a thing as too much tea. And I was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> is there? Is there really? Yeah, it turns out there is because uh, I was like, but it's green tea. And she's like, yeah, there's still fluoride in it. It's called fluoride poisoning. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> That's what that is. Uh-huh, OK. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, yeah, I, I like to write at home. But again, I'm I'm by no means I, I have had in the past, um, you know, back when I had a full time job, you know, man, you squeeze it in where you can. I was like you know, getting up at six in the morning and then taking a 45 minute bus ride to, to work at a warehouse and, you know, writing in comp notebooks because I couldn't afford a laptop. So writing in comp notebooks on, uh, on the ride to and from work and at lunch breaks and stuff, then coming at home, you know, uh, taking care of the kids, um, getting them to bed. And then once they're finally asleep, typing out what I wrote up in my comp notebooks that day. So, you know, uh, you you do what you got to do to make it to make it happen. Um, but you know, if if I have the preference, I prefer a nice peaceful window lit room uh, with my cork boards and my nice little laptop. I I did used to write longhand. Um, even still, when I write, I actually wrote all of the Empire of Storms longhand. Um, with a fountain pen uh, on fancy Japanese notebooks because I was. <laughs> I don't know. I was indulging myself, I suppose. Um, (laughs) But uh, uh, again, you know, you do what you got to do. And and right now, um, the way the market is and everything like that is you can't really, not that you can't, but it's challenging to support yourself and two kids on, on a, on a single kind of book track. Um, So I've had to start writing in other markets uh, as well. Um, like I've got a middle grade novel coming out in the fall from Scholastic and that kind of stuff. And then I've got another novel. I don't, not even sure uh, when it's coming. I don't know. Um, it's coming out. Yeah. There's another thing that I'm not, I guess I'm not supposed to talk about. Um, sorry. Um, but I wrote that as well this year. So I finally had to say, you know what, this like handwriting things in fountain pens was lovely and all, but you know, I just don't have the time for it. Um, 
So now I'm just writing directly on the laptop, but, but I like that too. It's a, I like to change up my process every once in a while. Just, I feel like it, it just freshens things up for me. Um, I'll change writing software. Um, I'm so fickle about my writing software right now. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm kind of jumping in back and forth between Ulysses and Scrivener. Um, but you know, I'll, I've used other things in the past. There was a brief period where I was writing everything on a old, uh, Mac, uh, clamshell uh, from the, like the bash terminal prompts, just using like nano and stuff, which is ridiculous. But, <laughs> but, but in my defense, I was writing a book written uh, told from the point of view of a hacker. And so I thought that would kind of get me in the mood. Um, so, you know, it all, it all depends. Um, uh, yeah. So I don't know. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In, in, a, in, a, in a roundabout way, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it kind of it kind of did lead me a little bit into my next one, um, which you you touched on. But um, tell me about your writing process. Like, do you do you plot everything out? I mean, I know you've written you know several stories up to this point, and you've got more coming out. You've written a couple of trilogies and so forth. I mean, does it change from you know every genre? Does it change from every book or series? Or do you kind of do you kind of have the same process for each one that you take on? You know, I, I always like to think of that Neil Gaiman quote where he talks about um, you don't actually learn how to write books; you learn how to write that book, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the next one comes along, and it's it can potentially be a completely different thing. Um, that's definitely true for me. On the whole, um, and I, I know people are fond of saying plotter and and pantser, but I, I'm just really reluctant to ever describe myself as, as a pantser. I, it sounds like I'm running around pulling people's pants down and right. I just don't, it's not really an image I want to conjure up. <laughs> I, I like George, George Martin's, um, he, what does he say? Architect and gardener. Oh, I like yeah. that better. I'm, I'm more of a gardener. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but even that's changed over time. When I first started writing, I would just like, you know, start at the beginning and, and, you know, as Lewis Carroll says, when you come to the end, stop. Um, that was my process for a while. And it was incredibly messy and frankly, not particularly efficient. Um, Cause you know, I would finish with these first drafts that were just a, just a hot mess. And I'd have to go back and rework this and rework that and cut and paste the hell out of everything, um, moving it all around and stuff. Um, which is when I started using modular writing apps like like Ulysses and Scrivener because it just makes that less painful. Um, but uh, over time, I have discovered that um, an outline can be helpful. Um, and there were kind of two things that led me to that. I was really resistant at first because I just how I I don't know what's going to happen until I get there. Um, and and some someone suggested to me I, I can't remember who it was now I feel terrible um, but someone suggested you know an outline when you write an outline that's a draft too like it's not like you write the outline and then you follow the outline like that can be just there can be as many revisions in the outline perhaps revisions that uh, as you go you are revising the outline to accommodate what you're actually writing in the draft. Um, that said, I, I still love to write the first couple of chapters with no plan um, or very little plan, maybe a vague idea of where I want to end up. But usually it's just I have a character in a place, uh, a person within a place, and, and I, I get a sense for those two. And once I've got those two, I just like to just just run with it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like 
you know, and you can talk about concepts and, and, and I'm sure that works for some people, but for me, I, I enjoy concepts. I enjoy discussing them and talking about the nauseum, but, but when it comes to me, to my artistic process, um, I, this is something that goes back to my acting days. Actors can sit around talking about the idea of the performance for, you know, hours and hours and hours. But at the end of the day, you just got to get up there and try it out and see what works. Because mm -hmm. sometimes the ideas work. And sometimes when you put it up there on the stage, it just doesn't work. And I feel the same way about writing. I can think up all these concepts. I can talk to people and friends and my agent and whoever about these concepts. But I won't really know if it works until I see it on the page. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, that's what I kind of need. That's when I, when I develop the voice and everything like that is in those first kind of wild first couple of chapters. The difference for me now that I didn't used to do is that after the, I get the, that first little chunk and it varies from book to book, whether it's a couple of chapters or 10 chapters or, or whatever it is, um, then I say, okay, okay, you, you got a sense for it. Let's go back and put some order to this chaos. Um, and that's when I'll usually write my outline then um, and kind of work out logistically so that now that I've got a feeling for it and I'm excited about it, I can kind of move forward with some sort of plan. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of where I fall on the, the – it's, it's not so much this or that. It's on the spectrum of uh, – <laughs> uh, of gardeners and architects or pantsers and plotsers or whatever, whatever you want to call them. I um, I'm, I'm sure we, I'm sure we could find some more to, you know, besides just those. Absolutely. Those <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I guess growing up into now, um, you know, who did you read growing up and I guess who influenced you the most to get into writing? Oh man. Or maybe um, who continues to influence you? Yeah, I mean, if I'm going to, I'll be on 100% honest with you. The very first um, author that I really fell in love with um, was David Eddings. Um, I don't, I've, I, I haven't reread his stuff in a very long time. I don't know how it holds up. I don't know if there's like wincing things every five minutes now, but I love those Belgarian books like, oh man. I, I must have read that whole 10 book series. There's only 10 books. There's no more after that. There's, there's definitely not two more after that. Um, it was a 10 book series only. Um, <laughs> but I read those 10 books so many times, um, I, I, at least 10 times, the whole 10 book series. Um, it just, I, I just couldn't get enough of the characters. I, I, I loved, uh, I, obviously the world building was amazing for me at the time anyway. Um, but the thing that just kept bringing me back to him is because I missed those characters. I wanted to see them again. I wanted, you know, Silk and Velvet and and all those other characters that I found so charming. I wanted to see them again. Um, and so that kind of laid a really strong bedrock for me as like a kind of a character-driven writer, I suppose. Um, and now when I was in college, I, I got away from reading a lot of uh, speculative fiction, fantasy, science fiction, and horror, uh, in part because I was just reading plays all the time. I mean, yeah, I guess you could consider like Waiting for Ghetto to be uh, speculative fiction. It is kind of post-apocalyptic. Um, uh, 
and and maybe some Jean Junet and 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 even some Brecht, I suppose, would be considered speculative. Um, but for the most part, I, I tended to focus a lot on theater. And when I wasn't reading theater, I was reading things like you know Tom Robbins and that kind of stuff. Um, it wasn't. And then when I first decided to write, inspired by that John Irving thing, I, I started for some reason just convinced that I needed to write literary fiction. Um, but that didn't last very long because it made me miserable. And then I was like, you know what would be great? Writing all those books that I loved. Um, and that's around that same time, I started picking up stuff by Michael Chabin and, um, and China Mieville and Michael, um, uh, Neil Gaiman and, you know, all those folks. Um, that kind of were all coming around. Jeff Vandermeer, oh, those early Jeff Vandermeer books. The new ones are great too, but man, I love those early weird, super, super weird ones. Um, that kind of stuff. I, I and it really was. It was the right books at the right time for me, um, and I really locked into that whole aesthetic a lot. Um, and then, um, you know, so I, I read all of those kind of compulsively for a while, and then. Um, with young adult, which is kind of where I got my start, um, I was working on this thing that, in retrospect, embarrassingly, was kind of like a Neil Gaiman pastiche. I didn't mean it to be, but I think it was. It was terrible. Um, but it meant well. And um, so I was really struggling to kind of still find my voice as a writer and stuff like that. And, and my agent at the time um, said, you know, what about this young adult thing everyone's talking about um and and you know at that time twilight had just come out oh, and it gosh. was like and i was like young adult like like gary paulson <laughs> you know like ugh. i mean no offense to gary paulson fans but you know hatchet was the bane of my childhood existence i i couldn't stand that book um and uh, it really was and um and so she's like, well, just, you know, just, just try some out. And then I picked up Holly Black's um, uh, uh, Modern Tales of Fairy books. And I remember just opening one up and, and the, on the first ch chapter, this teenage girl walks in on her mother and her own boyfriend having sex. She freaks out, shaves her head, and runs away to New York City to live with a bunch of like sexy fairy people. And I was like, what? "This is young adult." <laughs> yeah, sign me up for this. Um, and that was kind of uh, so. I, I just wanted to, you know, get in that um, that Holly Black uh, was also a huge impact um, for me as well. Okay. So those were kind of my. Uh, prose influences i suppose um because i read so much theater in in college um I, I i there's definitely a lot of oscar wilde and anton chekhov and and that kind of stuff that that i find influences my dialogue particularly with the ranger of marzana um because it's the ranger of marzana it, it's set in a, a a kind of a, a slavic based fantasy uh uh land um, in part because, and I swear I'm getting back to the original question. Um, <laughs> I, I tend to talk in, in kind of large arcs, um, very large circles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so this, the whole thing with Ranger Marzana began because I wanted to, um, research my ancestral, uh, uh, Poland. Um, and, uh, 
I started doing that. Um, my, my, my family's Polish and I, I wish that I'd asked my, my, my grandparents more about it. And I, and I didn't, um, I do have some cousins in Krakow though. Um, and, and so that's, that's somewhat helpful. Um, and, and, and in the process of, of researching Poland, I got, I remembered how much I loved, um, Russia and Russian literature, um, particularly, um, uh, pre-communist uh, Russian literature in the, in the time of like Chekhov and uh, you know uh, uh, Tolstoy and, and all those uh, all those guys and um, so I got really sucked down that rabbit hole and did a whole bunch of research on like Catherine the Great and stuff um, and when I started writing Ranger of Marzana um, it just seemed really natural to kind of take those things forward um, Marzana herself is a Polish deity of sorts. Uh, uh, she's the, the the goddess of winter in in, in pagan Polish traditions. Um, and there, to this day, there's actually a holiday in Poland called the Drowning of Marzana, in which um, on the last day, the last day of winter or the first day of spring, whichever which, whichever it is, probably the first day of spring, um, where they make an effigy uh, of the goddess Marzana and they uh, either drown her or they light her on fire and then drown her um, just to be sure, I guess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they make these little effigies like little like stick people um, often fairly intricately decorated um, and they, they kill it um, to celebrate the end of winter. Um, so that's where huh. I got the name Marzana from. Um, and I think, think that perhaps um, my love of Russian literature often comes out in the, the dialogue for the, the this book, for the Ranger of Marzana, because, um, and it goes back to um, to my love of, of like Russian theater and stuff that I, I studied under um, a couple of people on loan from the Moscow Art Theater. Um, and they were very, uh, there was there was Big Andre and, and Little Andre and, and Natasha. <laughs> um, and uh, they were great. And um and I learned a lot from them about uh, uh, Russia and, and Russian culture and Russian literature. Um, so, oh man, I, I I lost the circle. There was a circle there, and I lost it. Um, now, now you're making somewhat of a rectangle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh no, we're talking about inspiration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so for me, like, I though it sounds weird, and I hope it's not off-putting. Um, I, I, it probably is off-putting, but uh, I would count, uh, along with David Eddings and Holly Black and Neil Gaiman and China Mievo and all those folks, I would say that, you know, like Oscar Wilde and um, Anton Chekhov and uh, Tolstoy uh, w would also be huge writing inspirations for me. And, and I hope on, on some level, Lermontov, oh, he's not a great one, um, that you can, you can kind of get some flavor of that um in the in the in, in the in the book not like a way that it bogs down the story i i, I try to be very mindful of, of that but just that kind of flavor that kind of old school like czarist russian flavor um particularly in the the some of the characters the more kind of noble characters uh, that kind of like awkward nobility and and stuff like that um and also the soldiers there's a bunch of soldiers in there and they some of them are are quite weirdly stiff and, <laughs> and, and have their own issues. Um, so those are all kind of my weird grab bag of influences. Um, <laughs> I'm also a huge fan of comics. I love comics. Um, 
uh, and uh, so I, I, I'm an avid reader of that. And, and I feel like a lot of my visual, what I am describing in my books, I think, uh, as much as anywhere else comes from the art that has inspired me from comics. I gotcha. Well, you ruined one of my questions. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. It's fine. Cause you, you kind of answered it. So it's all good. Um, all right. So speaking of the Ranger of Marzana, um, mm-hmm. so it's the first book in a new trilogy called the goddess war. And it's set to hit shelves on the 21st of this month. So in about 20 days, um, I want you to sell me on the series. Now I've started the first book. I'm about a quarter of the way through, but I want you to sell me on the rest of the series, but I want you to sell the audience on the series itself. If oh man. I, t- I warned you ahead of time. I'm terrible at selling things. I know, that's, um, why, that's, why I, I, that's why I wanted you to do it. <laughs> what I'm going to do instead, because I'm not very good at behaving, okay. um, is I'm going to tell you what I love about it. And wow. hopefully that will sell you on yeah. it. So, what the goddess war is, is, is that ultimately, I'm not going to lie, there is a really big high concept thing going on that will slowly kind of come to uh, uh, view over the course of the three books, um, like massive cosmic scale kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, that is hinted at <laughs> by the end of the first book. Um, but, you know, that's not why you stick around. Um, as I said before, I'm absolutely a character-driven writer. Um, and and the thing that I love most are these characters. Um, there's Sonia, who is, I mean, we're not supposed to pick favorites, but like your kids, like you, 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 you probably do pick favorites. Um, and, uh, you know, Sonia for me is probably my favorite. She is the, the, the titular ranger of Marzana, um, the, the, what she believes to be the last of her kind. Um, you know, she lives in this land, Ismeros, which is, has been, uh, subjugated, um, by an empire, uh, and has been for the last 20 years where, where their, their own native culture has been slowly kind of ground down. Um, and in large part, because it was a very violent culture with these rangers of Marzana who worshiped the goddess of winter, Marzana, um, who is also, uh, sometimes known as the goddess of death. So these death-worshipping uh, rangers um, are, are basically a huge cultural component of this country. So when the empire comes in and they fight these rangers, when they finally beat them, they're like, "Well, you know, more rangers, <laughs> just no more Marzana, none of that." Um, we, you know, we're pretty. They're pretty liberal in a lot of ways, but you know, they're not going to go for that anymore. And so this empire comes in and they start just kind of systematically dismantling the culture. Um, because it is a culture that is against them. Um, and so uh, Sonia grows up in this culture, um, and unbeknownst to most people, her uh, the stable hand for her, the farm that her family owns, is secretly a ranger of Mazana, an older guy, and he indoctrinates her into the ways. And so as far as she's aware, she's the only ranger of Marzana. And when she's old enough, she just says, you know what? Um, I made a promise to the, the goddess Marzana that I would drive the empire out and that's what I'm going to do. So on her own, she's like fighting this little war, like a one lady war against, um, all of, uh, this occupying force. Um, 
And her brother, younger brother, Sebastian, is kind of sheltered. He he happens to be really gifted with uh, elemental magic, um, which is extremely rare. And as, as the book progresses, you find out has a huge cost. Um, but uh, his parents, their parents, forced him to hide this ability um, because they're afraid the Empire is going to want to recruit him. And sure enough, they do find out about it. And sure enough, they do come to recruit him. And their father... Um, gives his life so that he believes Sebastian can escape, but Sebastian does not escape. Um, he's captured by the Empire, and he uh, is, you know, he's young, and he's naive, and he's really sheltered, and he's a really sensitive, sweet guy, um, and he gets his head really turned around by a, a rather um, a charismatic commander of Imperial of uh, the Imperial forces and ends up joining the empire. Um, and so what you've got then is a sister and a brother on opposite sides of this conflict. Um, both of them incredibly powerful, both of them <laughs> with not a lot of experience, um, kind of just banging into each other and this huge fallout that comes from it. Um, there's a lot of magic, obviously Sebastian with his elemental magic, but, uh, Sonia also has a lot of magic as well. Um, what the Rangers of Marzana are really about is they form a pact with the uh, Lady Marzana in which they give pieces of their humanity in exchange for power. Um, and of course, the problem is that uh, as they lose their humanity, they gain more kind of animalistic physical traits, but also mental and emotional traits as well. So the more powerful Sonia gets, the more kind of hmm, difficult it her for it for her to uh, to control herself. Um, but she does get some friends that sort of help out with that to some degree. Um, and her brilliant solution is to go recruit a, uh, a neighboring country as allies um, that are known for having uh, necromancers who uh, control an army of the dead. So that's her like big plan to liberate her, her people okay. <laughs> is zombies. <laughs> I mean, what, what better way, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you basically got like Imperial magic using army versus a crazy hybrid animal person and her zombie army. Um, <laughs> sold. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sold to the highest better. That, that probably, but, uh, you know, but, you know, the thing for me is, so there's the high concept, but then there's the people. And, and I like to try to do both. Um, you know, uh, I have read some interviews uh, or some reviews, rather, that did not particularly like Sebastian. And I understand why he can be a little frustrating at times. Um, because he, he makes a lot of really poor choices in this first book. Mm -hmm. um, like, really poor choices. Um, but you got to start somewhere. And I... You know, I, there's got to be room for these people to grow over the course of three books. Right. Um, and so, and, and I also, I have a lot of sympathy for him, uh, a lot of empathy for him for, for struggling with all of the things that he's struggling with and, you know, trying to do his best and just, just sucking at it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I hope as a writer, I invite readers to empathize with, with all the characters. I don't, there aren't any, any lesser characters in my books um in fact there's one character there's kind of a third wheel to this whole thing galena um galena prostova orestevella 
Um, she's exactly as she sounds. Um, <laughs> she was supposed to. She was just supposed to be Sebastian's love interest. Frankly, that's all she was supposed to be. Like, uh, like this kind of weird bookish but hyper intelligent love interest for for him. Uh But as soon as I wrote the first chapter from her point of view, it was like, she's like, yeah, I'm taking over. All right. What else? You know, and the next thing I know, she's becoming this like focal character to the point where book two, the queen of Isnros is actually, um, that's her named after her. Um, So that's how big of a character she becomes. Gotcha. Uh, all right, so um, tell me a little bit about the ancient sect of warriors known as the Rangers of Marzana. Yeah, so um, as I said um, in the beginning uh, uh, earlier, there the Rangers, the Rangers of Marzana, are based off of, of an actual Polish um, legend, goddess, uh, folklore, um, the uh, the goddess of winter, Marzana, who they drowned at the beginning of spring every year. Um, that's where I got the idea uh, and the name. Um, but the actual Rangers themselves, uh, the idea is basically that they um, make a pact uh, with the Lady Marzana, um, who is an actual entity in the story. Um, she's not a physical entity. She's not physically in the regular world, but there are ways to interact with her, particularly for Rangers. Um, and um, so what they do is they they – sacrifice pieces of their humanity for for in exchange for power um and that's like like actual literal physical uh, body parts um that they they sacrifice in the ranger uh that 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 lady marzana um violently removes from them <laughs> um and then uh and when that happens, an animal version of that appears. In Sonia's case, the very first time she has to make a big sacrifice to to the Lady Marzana, Marzana tears off her ears. Um, she blackens them into uh, frostbite and then just basically just breaks them off because um, you know she's just like that. And uh, and fox ears grow in in their place, um, and that's because the Lady Marzana. Uh, attributes each ranger to a specific animal. Um, they're all animals that would appear in, in, in Russian Slavic folklore. Um, in Sonia's case, it's the fox, um, the stitsi, um, which is the Russian word for female fox. Um, and that's how uh, Marzana only refers to her. My precious the stitsi. Um, and she, uh, so Sonia's ears grow back to fox ears. And, and the reason that the Lady Marzana picks a particular animal is because it jives with their personality. And Sonia is kind of, um, at least as far as foxes are depicted in, in, in Slavic folklore, um, they're generally, they're tricksters um, uh, and they're kind of, uh, they're, they're clever, but oftentimes their own cleverness is what gets them into trouble. Um, and so much the same way with uh, Sonia, she's impulsive, she's a trickster, um, she's incredibly enthusiastic about just about everything. Um, but that can often as not get her into enormous trouble. Um, so as the story progresses and as she's forced to um, ask more things from the lady, um, she's physically begins to take on more characteristics of the fox, but also her personality becomes more fox-like and less human-like and it becomes increasingly difficult for her to kind of control some of her impulses mm-hmm. um and, and so and I, I don't mean i mean I, I don't really care about spoilers so i 
I won't say too much, but there are are other and other rangers um, in in the in the book. Um, uh, she thinks she's the only one left, but but uh, there are others, and they each have their own kind of like animal counterpart as well that that they are slowly or not so slowly becoming, depending on the ranger. Um, yeah, has that? Is yeah, that- it's, that's kind of a that's kind of a neat, uh, I guess, little little addition in there. So I don't think I've seen that before. It's very very original, at least in the fantasy that I've read. Granted. I can't say that I'm a master of reading fantasy because I've only been doing it for a couple of years, but, um, but it, it's, it's, it's something I've definitely, you know, have not seen before. So I'm, I'm interested to see how, you know, how, how the form takes as I get further. Cause yeah, I've, I've gotten to the part about the ears. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I've kind of, so I kind of like just started, you know, <laughs> it's, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it gets pretty intense. Um, and you know, and and I, it's because as the story progresses, the the form of magic that she's using there, this kind of uh, bestial, bestial uh, sacrificial magic, it's pretty potent stuff. Um, and the more you want, it it can get quite strong. And she uses it to quite good effect at times. Um, but I feel like with big magic, you, there has to be like equally large consequences and prices for that magic. And I felt, you know, it, it creates an interesting conflict um, between the two where it's, you know, I mean, she's boxed into a corner and she's got to make that choice and oh. she knows what's happening and she knows what's going to come. She's not a dummy. Um, you know, she knows it's going to be harder for her to function as a normal human being. Both people will look at her and they'll see that she's different people. And, and then her own, she begins to have to start questioning her own motives and her own impulses and her own mind because how much can she rely on it after the second one or the third one? And she doesn't really know. Yeah. So, um, and then when she meets some Rangers, they aren't exactly comforting. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that too. I gotcha. uh, um, so I know you touched on a little bit, um, kind of when you were talking about your influences, uh, you know, kind of how you decided to write, I guess, more of a Russian inspired epic fantasy story. But um, is there more than just I decided to look into my family history and found some things and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write this <laughs> this fantasy story that just happens to be inspired mm-hmm. by Russian folklore. Or, you know, was it just something that profoundly interested you and you're like, I want to write something in this kind of setting? Uh, I mean, it's 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 hard to ever nail down any one particular thing when you're writing a book, any kind of book, much less one that takes three books, like a story that takes three books to tell. There's gotta be a lot in there in order to, to, to make that much story. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's partially my own, um, it's partially my own like uh, research into uh, my own ancestry. It's partially my love of Russian literature um, it's partially my fascination for siblings because I never, I, I although I have, a, I have, a, I have a half brother, I have a stepbrother, and I have a stepsister. I've never lived for any length of time with any of them, and so for me, writing about siblings is a fantasy of sorts because I've never done it, and I've always been kind of jealous um, that you have this person that's 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 shared your life with you. Um, and so I wanted to kind of explore that. And I know that sounds kind of weird because they are immediately at odds with each other in this book, but that's not always going to be the case. Um, 
and I wanted to find those places. Um, so the sibling thing is fascinating to me. Um, I also, uh, I, I, I love all kinds of fantasy, but I, I gotta say, I get a little tired of everything looking like it's this kind of Celtic sort of, you know, ironically, there are Celtic people in this book, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but you know that there's this kind of Western European kind of like uh, like everything has to like not everything has to, but so much is is this kind of Western European inspired fantasy. Uh, And I just castles and kingdoms and yeah, yeah, and I have nothing against that kind of stuff, but Mm. but it's not you know it's certainly not all there is, and you know. You had mentioned before the the, the whole uh, conceit of the rangers and and this kind of animal sacrifice component. Um, it doesn't seem so out there or 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 kind of unusual when you've grown up with a lot of like Slavic folk stories, mm-hmm. because there are just animals everywhere. And and if it's not an animal, it's a part animal, or it's or it's like an animal part thing, or you know, I mean, like even the witches have houses with chicken legs on them. Like what? Why would that happen? I don't know, but it did. And there you have it. So, so just like, yeah, right? Um, Baba Yaga shout out there. What? Um, the, the idea that uh, I, I wanted to see something that, that my grandmother, rest her soul, would, would have read and been like, whoa, whoa, this looks like, like my childhood. You know what I mean? Like, I wanted something like that. Um, and so, but I also, well, I don't want to get too much into the kind of high concept cosmic things that are going on, but there is a larger question at play in terms of like chaos and order and spring and winter and, and fate and chance and all of that stuff being played out uh, on, on kind of a large scale. Um, and that was another thing that I really wanted to experiment with. Um, the Lady Marzana does have a sister, uh, the Lady Zivana, uh, the goddess of spring. Um, and and their influence on this story is not apparent initially, but it is absolute mm-hmm. um, as the story progresses. And that's something that really excites me a lot. And um, But it's a long game and it's a big concept and I needed a lot of time to work it out in, or, in order for it to feel organic and not just like some weird concept. Mm-hmm. But like by the time you get to meet these these deities, like it's going to feel they make sense in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, that, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> A little, a little bit of the character, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. It's, you're completely fine. Um, okay, so you, I'm telling you, you keep answering my questions, Margaret. So uh, I'm sorry. No, you're good. Uh, so you touched on siblings. Um, you know, sibling rivalries have always been a thing, uh, but this one seems to be more of a tale about one sibling clinging to a past while another looks to the future. I mean, would you agree with that as far as um, Sonia and Sebastian? I mean, I guess that, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way, honestly. Um, I, I suppose Sonia would be the one clinging to the past then. Yeah. Um, and and Sebastian would be the one looking to the future. Um, and 
I can see how that that you could interpret it that way for yeah. sure. Um, I mean, you know, Sonia wants Ismaros to be the way it was, which is funny because it it wasn't. It's never been that way in her entire life. It's 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 <laughs> it's not an actual past that she's she's searching for. It's this idealized past, right? Yeah. It's this romanticized past. And when she actually meets some rangers, she's going to find out that mm, maybe it wasn't so great after all. Right. Um, but you know, in the same sense that Sebastian is kind of, um, yeah, I, he definitely, he believes that he's going towards some great new modern future. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because that's what he's been told and he hasn't figured out yet that people lie and people are good at it. Right. Um, and so, and he's not, he's terrible at it. Oh man, he's bad. Um, <laughs> I, was saying, so I feel like he's just been so sheltered and he's been told no 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 and then he gets this opportunity and he's like mm-hmm. yes 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 everything this sounds uh, I mean, amazing come on. i mean like he's one of the most powerful people in the world and he's not and never even been allowed to like let anyone know besides his dumb sister and his annoying parents like, <laughs> right <laughs> uh, oh my gosh i have all this power no right so <laughs> And boy, does he! Um, right. <laughs> boy, howdy! Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you started with young adult novels, and then moved on to adult fantasy novels with Empire of Storms. Mm. Um, I guess what made you make that transition? And I mean, granted, you still write young adult and I guess children's novels. Um, yep. What kind of made you make that transition? And then. You know, I guess what makes you keep kind of going back toward to your quote unquote roots? You know, it's it's tricky. It's and it's it's fluid because it changes over time. When I first started writing young adult, it was a very different vibe. I, I think I mentioned before that it was, you know, at the early stages of like Twilight and stuff when I started reading it and getting into it. And even when I first got published and my first young adult novel, interestingly, the only non-speculative fiction novel I ever wrote um, called Struts and Frets. It was just like a about a kid in high school starting an indie rock band while dealing with his Alzheimer's uh, suffering grandfather. Um, it's a comedy. Um, and, uh, you know, at that time, um, for that and for Misfit, um, which is about a demon girl in Catholic school, um, there was this sense of freedom you know, like I, I always think back, God, it's the second time here I'm quoting Neil Gaiman, but um, <laughs> in an interview, Neil Gaiman was talking, someone was asking like, what was it like to write comics in the 80s and, you know, to kind of do write Sandman and all that stuff back then? And he said, you know, the thing was, he's like, no one took us seriously, but in a way that was great because we could do whatever we wanted. No one was paying attention. We could just get away with anything, you know? Right. Um, and... And I feel like YA in the late aughts, the mid to late aughts, was very similar. It was like the Wild West, man. You could do whatever you wanted. There was this glorious sense of freedom and almost zero expectation. And publishers were just like throwing out money left and right. You know, that ended up being kind of a problem uh, for a couple of reasons, Um, partially because the whole, uh, uh, you know, with the we had that recession and a bunch of people got laid off and and then other stuff. And then a lot of authors, debut authors ended up with these massive advances. We're talking like a million dollar advances. And the pressure um, to perform was so excruciating um, and and frankly, often out of their control um, that it really like 
I, I have some friends of mine really suffered emotionally because of that. Um, and so there were some downsides to it, but man, was it exciting at the time. Um, but as young adult became more and more recognized as, as a, a reliable way to make money, uh, I don't know if this is true now, but at one point, I believe it was the second best-selling genre after um, romance, um, which is always king. Um, and I say genre in, in a kind of a loose way. Well, young adult isn't really a genre, but it's uh, it's it's you know it's it's age group. <laughs> um, it's 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 a market. Yeah. But it is often utilized as a genre. Um, like for example, two of my young adult novels were published by Viking, uh, uh, which is an imprint uh, of Random Penguin House or Penguin Random House or whatever we're supposed to say. Um, and uh, uh, it, but Viking doesn't publish fantasy novels. They just happened to publish a young adult novel that had a bunch of monsters in it, mm. um, which was Man Made Boy. Um, and, and so it's used as a genre category of sorts in a weird sort of way but and as young adult became more and more recognized as being kind of lucrative and and you know tv deals and movie deals and you know money just everywhere but in a weird way that didn't actually free things up more that actually made people start to kind of tighten up and all of a sudden it became a very commercial process and a very commercial venture uh, at least th that was my experience and, and there's been a lot of debate on this it depends on who you ask i've asked some people who've written for YA around the same time I did, um, you know, do you think YA has gotten uh, kind of more conservative? Um, and some people will say, no, no, it's always been like this. You just, you know, you, you, you kind of hit your glass ceiling in terms of like what the market is now. You know, you've developed as a writer to the point where the, what the market is willing to put up with your artistic shenanigans, it's just, they don't want it. Um, you know, and other people are like, yes, no, I do believe it has changed over the years. It wasn't always this this rigid. Um, so I don't know which is true, but I know that for me, by the time I'd finished write, writing um, This Broken Wondrous World, which was my fourth YA novel, I was feeling frustrated and feeling like uh, any sort of nuance or, or, or subtlety that I wanted to inject into my stories was just being steamrolled right out. Um, and, and so I started writing something and I didn't purposely write an adult fantasy novel, but I just started writing the fantasy novel that I really wanted to read. Um, one with all the kind of strangeness and, um, and subtlety and, and, and unexpectedness that, that I like in a book. And, um, and that's where Hope and Red came from. Um, I don't think most of what I did in that book could have been allowed in young adults. And I'm not just talking about the sexy bits, um, <laughs> although there are some of those. Uh, nor am I talking about the violence bit, although there's a lot of those. The opening chapter starts with bird-sized parasitic wasps that inject their eggs into people, um, and then the, you know, the, the parasite uh, larvae eat the people from the inside out and then burst from their skin. It's I mean, little, come on. <laughs> you look, you can look it up. Those exist in real life. They're just a lot smaller and they do it in, in, in uh, silkworms instead of people. But the idea holds. Um, it's true. 
uh, it's it's science. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I could have gotten away with something like uh, that grisly of an opening scene in in young adult. Um, but I feel more to the point. Um, what I couldn't have gotten away with was inventing my own slang for the inner city kids. Um, was and by inner city, I'm not talking like current inner city. I'm talking like you know, kind of gangs of New York style inner city. Um, and, uh, you know, there were so many like kind of strange chances I took with it. I mean, it's basically, I like to describe it as my Kung Fu pirate gangster romance novel. Um, (laughs) and it is all of those things. And you, I don't think I could have gotten away with all of that in young adult. So, um, but I didn't know what to do with it. And then I showed it to a couple of friends of mine and, and my friend Stephanie was like, John, I think this is actually an adult fantasy novel. And I was like, oh, and as soon as she said that, like it clicked, I was like, yes, of course that's what this is. And so, um, yeah. And then the rest was uh, selling it to Orbit. Um, and then the madness of writing nine, because we only, I only wrote the first book when we sold the trilogy. And so then I had to write the other two books in the space of 18 months, uh, which was interesting. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very exciting. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. It was thrilling, but um, also nearly broke me. Right. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I, I talked to, to one of my author friends that actually uh, lives fairly close to me. He writes um, kind of like mystery, thriller, detective kind of novels, like noir mm-hmm. novels. And mm-hmm. um, you know, he was like, you know, I wrote the first book, and then my you know publisher was like, all right, how fast can you get us the second one? And he goes, you know, I really wasn't even intending on writing a second one. So he's like, my second book's just utter crap. But this third book's going to be really good. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, so honestly, if you want to skip the second one, you totally can. (laughs) Just because, you know, he he wasn't so used to writing on a timeline. You know, he kind of was like, I'll throw a book a year and more if I can. And now it's like, you need this in six months. And he's like, well, crap. (laughs) Yeah, man. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes having those sorts of limitations or, or kind of uh, having those challenges can actually pull out some of your best work. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the middle grade novel that I uh, is coming out from Scholastic in the fall, it's called The Hacker's Key. Um, and it's I mean, like, let's be honest, it is 100 percent basically like a, a female version of the Alex Cross like spy novels. Um it's it's you know but with more of an international flair mm-hmm. um and a lot more science um but but you know i only had four months to write that sucker um and and i have to say like i'm really pleased with it it is just a tight little book like it is just clean it's like a knife you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it is just clean and sharp and ka-chow! it's in and out in like you know, record time. It's short. It's, you know, it's for middle grade, so it's got to be short. Right. Um, but like, yeah, man, it just gets in there, it does its business, and it says, peace out, and that's it. <laughs> it's And and sometimes having those limitations can, can really bring forth a lot of interesting work, I think. Yeah. I gotcha. All right, so, um, you know, obviously you're probably right in the middle of, I'm assuming book two of the goddess war, maybe even book three is, would you say that's what you're working on now? Or do you have something uh, else prim- in the pipeline? Primarily. Yeah. Queen of Ismeros, um, is actually, I just turned it in like a week or two ago to my editor, um, Breet. Um, and so she's looking at that now. Um, and I'm kind of, prepping for book three which is going to be the the wizard of uh eventide um 
but I'm I'm not going to start writing until I hear back on book two, just in case there's like something where she's like, I can't believe you did this. This is crazy. You will never work. And then I'll have to like go back to figure it out. Um, <laughs> I have to know this. Um, and how she actually talks because I can't tell on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I uh, so I'm holding off on that now, but I always have a bunch of other stuff that I'm working on. Um, Right now, I know this is crazy, but I'm actually working on, uh, among other things, I'm working on, well, I finished the middle grade that's coming out of the fall from Scholastic. Um, I have another project that is finished and sold to Saga Press uh, at Simon & Schuster, um, but we, I, there was a big kind of reorg over there. I'm not sure if you saw that happen yeah, yeah. um in in the process um some books mine included got kind of it's not that it's not going to happen it's mm-hmm. just that it's kind of they're still trying to sort things out over there i guess um yeah. and my editor though the editor who acquired it um is no longer there um so uh that's awkward and and frustrating because it was it's like a little like baby project of mine just one that i just love mm. uh to bits it's funny you mentioned noir earlier it's it's basically like fantasy noir um it's i like to say it's not a fantasy novel it's a crime novel set in a fantasy world mm-hmm. and that's kind of really what it is um uh uh but you know, I, I probably shouldn't talk too much about that because I don't know when it's coming out. It could be not for a year or two years. Who knows? Right. Um, and then um, I'm also uh, working on another young adult novel, but that's still in the very early development stages. Um, and I'm also, I've got a chunk of, of stuff written for, what I would like to do after I'm after I'm done with the Goddess War, okay, um, which I can't talk about at all, obviously. But um, but that's that's the idea, right? Is that when I'm getting into book three of the Goddess War, I can then submit that to my editor, um, and hopefully it'll all be lined up. Yeah, to go. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I keep busy. Um, I always have to have a couple of different projects and a couple of different states of development um, because, as I was um, messaging with my friend Melinda Lowe the other night, um, I, I, I have a hard time not writing. <laughs> like I'm just not very good at it. I don't understand like what people do all day when when they're not writing. Um, <laughs> But I, I'm sure it's great. I'm sure there's something deeply, deeply broken about me that just can't just do that. Um, but I, I, I tried one time. Uh, my agent was like, "Why don't you just try not writing for you know a little while?" And I was like, "Huh." So I called up my friends. I'm like, "Well, what do I do?" And uh, it lasted about two weeks, and then I started getting really grumpy, and so I realized I had I better start writing again. Um, <laughs> So that's how that, that, that went. Um, so yeah, I've always got a bunch of different things and, and it's always frustrating because there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about, like the noir piece, but um, I'm just, I just shouldn't because there's so much that I don't know for sure yet. And so I probably just shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't promise anything. I gotcha. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's always nice to, you know, you just yeah, dang, dang, yeah. dangle the bait out there. <laughs> um, so you know, with, I guess, some 
I don't know if you would say added spare time the past uh, you know, couple of weeks or a couple of months or anything, but uh, is there anything that you've read recently that you'd recommend? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just read um, uh, Melissa Caruso's uh, The Obsidian Tower, um, which I don't know when it's coming out. Pretty soon, I would imagine. Um, can't be too much longer. Maybe even around the time mine's coming out. I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> And that was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, yeah, it comes out June 2nd. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed that. It, it, it's, a, it's a very kind of super kind of deep dive into like a first person. It's it, like it's a massive fantasy world with a delightfully like complex world and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, man, you're just – it's like a super deep dive into like a really – fascinating and complicated character all told in first person so you're really getting this kind of microscopic view of, of a world that you can you oh man you're just seeing the ed you like you're just seeing kind of like all the stuff around it's so great i love it when a fantasy world you can't see the edges like like it just keeps going beyond your peripheral vision right uh, that that's my favorite and 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 melissa did a hell of a job and it's just her writing so empathetic um that and like just really connecting with the characters, which as I, I've mentioned a couple of times now is like kind of my, my thing. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, Melissa's book is amazing. The Obsidian Tower. Read it. Okay. Um, Anything else? Oh, um, I mean, uh, there, I mean, there's always so many things. Another thing that I'm really pushing heavily right now because it's just freaking beautiful is, um, I don't even know how to say his name. Um, Kill, uh, Karen Gillian, Karen Gillen. I don't know. He's British. Um, and he wrote, he's written a bunch of stuff like, um, uh, uh, he, he wrote some, some Darth Vader comics for a while and star Wars for a while. But, uh, what I really like is his creator owned stuff like the wicked and the divine. And, and he just came out with this uh, book called die, um, which is, as he describes it, goth Jumanji. Um, <laughs> it's basically about these teenagers who who create a um, uh, 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 a role, tabletop role playing game and then get sucked into it. Mm -hmm. But when they get there, it's awful. Like it's so awful. Like it's 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 a horror show. Awful. Like it's just 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 disturbing. And you don't, but you don't know what happens right away. They just disappear, and then they reappear a couple day, couple years later. But they are like so messed up, <laughs> like just so messed up. Um, and uh, and one of them's missing, and the other one is, and one of them who survived is missing her arm, and like, and it's just, uh, it's just a really, really, uh, 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 it's it's one of those kind of like, it's sublime. In, in the truest sense of the word, like it's darkly beautiful and it's, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just so dark and so beautiful. And, uh, and the artwork is just breathtaking. I, I, yeah. The whole thing, it just came together really nicely. Um, so I guess those are two really, really uh, two recommendations. This probably not. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, I, I didn't really realize that he had written all of this stuff. Like I didn't realize he wrote the Darth Vader comics Mm -hmm. And he also wrote The Wicked and the Divine. And he also wrote the new uh, comic from Image, Die. Didn't yeah. realize he wrote all that. And I haven't read any of it, but I really want to. And I've got all of it, so I should. And I have time now to do it. Um, oh, but yeah, that's, that's awesome. 
if you're a Star Wars fan, you will eat those Darth Vader books up like nothing, man. That you just be like, "Wait, do you mean all four volumes are done? It's only been one day." <laughs> That's what it'll be like. It's so good. The characters is so great, and there's even he he did a, one of the main characters. Well, the the three new characters that he added to the world with that Darth Vader series, Doctor Afra and her like psychotic droid sidekicks, um, are they have their own spinoff series too, and that's. I mean, it's it's fun. It's not quite the same, um, but it, it's it's still uh, it's such a charming character. They're such fun characters that it's it, it's worth a worth the read as well. Um, I just hope they bring Doctor Afro into kind of like live action or cartoon or something like that. That'd be awesome. I'd say they might. I mean, you know, they've got this whole new. I mean, granted, it's supposed to be like what? How many years before? the saga you know they got that whole new thing they're pushing out in july which i'm assuming it's still happening in july well um, oh you're talking like an old republic kind of thing yeah they, they're i can't remember what it's called now but they just like announced it yeah. i guess earlier in march and i feel like it's gotten swept under the rug unfortunately because all this covid sure. stuff but they, you know, they're starting like a, almost like a whole new universe but it's all like a thousand years before or something sure well also i mean i hopefully they with they hopefully they learn some lessons with the success of the Mandalorian and they'll realize like oh we have a really cool world with lots of compelling places and people it doesn't have to all be about the Skywalkers right you know what I mean like yeah. or 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 it doesn't even have to be Skywalker adjacent you know what I mean right. it can just be other people in this world yeah yeah it's not uh, that I have anything wrong with the Skywalkers I guess they're all right but um it's played out. Isn't it though? I mean, yeah. how many movies do you want? Nine movies? Good lord. <laughs> no, uh, it's called The High Republic. That's uh oh, that's the, the new high... Oh right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah and you I know they're doing like movie. comics and books and yeah, yeah. 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 Um because like Claudia Gray is doing a book and Justina Ireland's doing one and um, uh, Charles Soule's kind of like leading the leading the way with the uh, Light of the Jedi. Yeah, you know, it's I love that they're doing that, but I'm like, oh my gosh, like with all these people that have written Star Wars novels, like they could do so many spinoffs that would just be amazing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if they decide to turn them into film. But yeah, but I think, I think, I think you're right. The whole Mandalorian with how well it did on a small screen with it being yeah. just so good just shows, yeah, you don't, it doesn't have to just be a freaking movie. <laughs> no, no. So, it can be all sorts of things. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so Last question, uh, and I know a lot of authors don't really like this question, but I'm asking anyway. Uh, what bit of advice would you give to aspiring writers? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, when you write young adult, you actually not only have to think about this conceptually, but you actually have to you you are confronted with it in reality. <laughs> like, so it's you know, it's always tricky, and you know, at the end of the day, like. There's not really any direct advice I could give to an inspiring writer that I could necessarily say would help them. But one story that always kind of strikes me is um, for my third novel, Man Made Boy, um, which is about a teenage uh, Frankenstein's monster um, set in modern day, um, just for context. Um, so for that book, um, there's a, a local organization, nonprofit in DC called the Open Book Foundation. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they contacted me and they were like, Hey, we would like to, you know, host your book. Um, what they do is they go into title one schools and, uh, school, any school basically that's designated to have like free and reduced lunch for public schools. Um, they go in, they buy a bunch of your books, which is amazing. 
And then they, they basically bring the author in and every kid who comes to hear the author speak gets a free copy of your book. And this is amazing because you don't have to convince anyone to buy your book. It's already been bought. All you got to do, and this is no small feat, but for teenagers, but all you have to do is convince them to like read it. Uh Um, and so, um, the, the, the open book foundation was like, well, like, what are you comfortable with? Like, do you want like a small group or whatever? And I was like, literally you can throw me anywhere and I'm fine. And they were like, well, like anywhere. I was like, yeah, yeah. Like literally anywhere. It'll be fine. Um, and so they were like, there's this one school, (laughs) um, in DC and no author had visited this high school in, I think, over 10 years. Wow. Um, it's in an in, intensely impoverished area. Um, in, and I guess, uh, I don't know why it just has a bad reputation or something. I don't know. Um, but I was like, yeah, man, sure. Of course, of course I'll do that. And so like I went in and it was like airport level security, just getting into the school and all that stuff and, you know, kind of intense. And, um, you know, and I did a couple of different groups of kids and, and it's for sure like teenagers, like it was, it's tough to get their attention, especially if they don't really want to be there. Like, you know what I mean? Like they're just, they're there because they were like, it's either go to your English class or listen to this, this author dude talk and get a book. And they were like, well, I guess it sounds better than, you know, um, <laughs> I guess it's better. Uh, <laughs> uh, barely. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, and the, well, that's what some of these kids show up with, you know, uh, and that's what's, that's their mindset when they show up in your job as the author is to try to convince them that like, that it is worth it. Um, and that this is cool and fun. Uh, I don't know. It's always, you can't really convince people of cool, I guess, but, but you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I'm up there earning my, earning my, my paycheck. Uh, well, not really paycheck, but they bought a bunch of my books. So I'm earning that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I do my whole shtick and, and, and it's going over pretty well. I mean, they were a tough crowd, man. They made me work for it, but ultimately it worked out. Um, and then at the end, we're like doing all this, like at the end, they like each of them gets a copy of their book and they can bring it up to me and get it signed. Um, and so there's like a big line. Everyone's, well, I might as well be here. I might as well get my book signed. You know, they're all kind of coming up. And, um, and, and there's this one dude hanging out in the back. There's one dude, he's a super tall, skinny dude. Like, like, I don't know if he played basketball, but he's the kind of dude that you would expect to play basketball. Cause he's just like super tall and like super thin, um, kind of guy. And he's like, you know, got his hoodie on with the hood pulled up and his hands like deep in his pockets and his head kind of down. He's just like lurking. Right. And so he, he's just hanging out in the back and everyone else goes through the line. They're all going off to lunch or whatever it is they're doing. And he's still kind of like there. And I was like, so you're going to get your book signed or what? <laughs> and he, he, he says, can I, can I ask you a question? And I was like, yeah, of course, of course. I was like, I'm not going to her. And he says, so um, do you ever feel like, uh, like the stuff you write is just stupid? <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, yeah. yes yes absolutely man absolutely so we had this really it opened up this really great conversation where he i don't know what it was that i said or or did that made him feel like he could say this super intense secret thing but like he came up and we had a really good conversation about struggling with self-doubt and writing and all that stuff and you know so I guess if I had some advice, it is that a 
find people that you can have those kind of conversations with and B, don't be afraid to have those kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that if, because we all struggle with self-doubt and editing ourselves and, and all of that stuff. And I feel like if you can put it into the world and out of your head, you can re it really helps. It just really helps. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to make you a better writer, but it will make you suffer less. And you don't actually need to suffer to be a good writer. Like, that's not actually a requirement. Right. Um. <laughs> I gotcha. Well, well, John, uh, it is it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Yeah, um, man. It's been great. I had a great time. Thanks yeah, for bringing me on. Yeah, absolutely. It's been awesome. And guys, uh, listening in, um, you can follow John on social media. You can find him on Twitter at Johnny Skov. That's J-O-N-N-Y-S-K-O-V. Uh, also the same on Instagram. You can find him on Facebook at John Scovran. And then you can find his website, johnscovran.com. Uh, as for his books, uh, like I said, his uh, first adult trilogy, uh, Empire of Storms, is out everywhere. Uh, so you can definitely check it out. And then the first book in his new Goddess War trilogy, Ranger of Mazana, is out on the 21st. And, uh, I mean, that'll be an ebook paperback release. And maybe we'll get audio at some point for those that love a good audio book. Um, and then, yeah, if you're into some of his YA stuff, like you said, he's got, he's got a few out there already. And he's got uh, some more coming at the end of this year. And further than that and then he's got some other stuff cooking so we'll definitely be looking forward to that but uh yeah just uh just thanks again for coming on and, and glad you enjoyed yourself i definitely did and be looking for a review of, of ranger here soon and uh good luck with the uh good luck with the release thanks man i appreciate it absolutely and uh and you know like i said once once the craziness <laughs> of, of yeah, having right. a baby and everything you know gets you know gets through and we actually get into some kind of rhythm. I'll, I'll see if we can't do this again, you know, next year for, for release the book too. Perfect. Awesome. Well, uh, will you enjoy the rest of your week? Stay safe. Uh, enjoy animal crossing and writing and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll talk again soon. All right, man. Take it easy. Hey, you too. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to read hope and red, stay tuned for a clip from the audiobook presented by hashtag audio and read for you by the author. I hope you enjoy it. Captain Sintoa stared down at the girl. During her tale, her expression had remained fixed in a look of wide-eyed horror. But now it settled back into the cold emptiness he'd seen when he'd first coaxed her out of the hold. How long ago was that? he asked. Dunno, she said. How did you get aboard? he asked. We never docked. I swam. Quite a distance. Yes. And what should I do with you now? She shrugged. A ship is no place for a little girl. I have to stay alive, she said, so I can find that man. Do you know who that was? What that sign meant? She shook her head. That was the crest of the Emperor's biomancers. You haven't got a prayer of ever getting close to that man. I will, she said quietly. Someday. If it takes my whole life, I'll find him and kill him. Captain Sintoa knew he couldn't keep her aboard. It was said maidens, even eight-year-old ones, could draw the attention of the sea serpents in these waters as sure as a bucketful of blood. The crew might very well mutiny at the idea of keeping a girl on board. But he wasn't about to throw her overboard, 
or dump her on some empty piece of rock either. When they landed the next day at Galemore, he approached the head of the Vincian Order, a wizened old monk named Herlow. Girls seen things nobody should have to see, he said. The two of them stood in the stone courtyard of the monastery, the tall black stone temple looming over them. She's a broken thing. Could be a monastic life is the only option left to her. Herlow slipped his hands into the sleeves of his black robe. I sympathize, Captain, truly I do. But the Vincian order is for men only. But surely you could use a servant around, said Toa. She's a peasant, accustomed to hard work. Herlow nodded. We could, but what happens when she comes of age and begins to blossom? She will become too great a distraction for my brothers, particularly the younger ones. So keep her till then. At least you'll have sheltered her a few years, kept her alive long enough for her to make her own way. Herlow closed his eyes. It will not be an easy life for her here. Don't think she'd know what to do with an easy life if you gave her one anyway. Herlow looked at Toa. And to Toa's surprise, he suddenly smiled, his old eyes sparkling. We will take in this broken child you have found. A bit of chaos in the order brings change. Perhaps for the better. Toa shrugged. He'd never fully understood Herlow or the Vincian order. If you say so, Grand Teacher. What is the child's name? asked Herlow. She won't say for some reason. I half think she doesn't remember. What should we call her then, this child born of nightmare? As her unlikely guardians, I suppose it is now up to us to name her. Captain Sintoa thought about it a moment, tugging at his beard. Maybe after the village she survived. Keep something of it in memory, at least. Call her Bleak Hope. Hope you guys enjoyed my chat with John Scoverin. Uh Stay tuned. <laughs> Well, on the third, uh, as I'm going to be posting an episode with author Max Berry about his brand new novel, Providence, um, it just kind of was a last minute edition since, uh, you know, his, his U.S. tour got canceled uh, thanks to COVID. Um, and then on the fifth, I'll be dropping an episode with author Rob Hayes talking about his brand new trilogy with book one called Along the Razor's Edge. Uh, and then on the 8th, I'll be dropping an episode with author Nick Martell. We'll be talking about his upcoming debut, The Kingdom of Liars. Uh, but yeah, guys, uh, like I say always, continue to pop in. Thank you so much for you know all that you do with listening to these and sharing them. And uh, just continue to stay safe. And uh, yeah, thanks, guys.